0: Hello, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land, land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This is Red Flag Radio, a revolutionary socialist podcast. And this episode in, in particular um, is going to delve into some questions I think that will be of particular interest to people who are really starting to get serious about politics and thinking about history and theory and the combination of those two things. And the Russian Revolution really throws up some of the major questions, I think, for anybody grappling with socialism and kind of what kind of socialist that you want to be and what kind of activism you want to be involved in. My name is Ros Ward. I'm the host of the podcast and um, you may have noticed a bit of a longer gap between episodes. Uh, me and my partner have just had a baby and welcome Leo to the world. He may be a co-host of the show in a few years time. Uh, uh, in the meantime, Liam Ward, no relation <laughs> yeah. is uh, my co-host and producer of the show. And, yep. um, Welcome back, Liam. Thanks. And um, thanks to all our uh, supporters on Patreon who continue to fund us um, and help support this podcast to happen and a bunch of the activism that goes on um, within and around the podcast and our newspaper, uh, Red Flag. Our Patreon is patreon.com red flag radio podcast, if you want to find that. And our guest today is Sandra Bloodworth, who's a a veteran activist, writer, historian, one of the editors of the Marxist Left Review, a new edition of which is just coming out now for subscribers to the journal. But if you're not already a subscriber, you can look that up pretty easily by putting in Marxist Left Review journal, and you'll find uh, back issues, longer form essays and articles. And you can also subscribe. It's very... Um, I think too cheap, really, to subscribe to Marxist Left Review, but there you are. Take the opportunity to do that. Spend some time reading some longer pieces. And also, um, if you're not already familiar with the Red Flag Bookshop, shop.redflag.org.au is where you can find a short book on the Russian Revolution that Sandra uh, wrote called How Workers Took Power in the 1917 Russian Revolution that is a really great introduction um, to this whole period of history that we're delving into. So that's a top tip to read more on the Russian Revolution. There's also a longer form piece that I'll put in the links um, to the show that's on the Red Flag website that's got some beautiful um, photographs and illustrations that go alongside an essay about the Russian Revolution. So there's plenty to read and there's plenty of controversy around this topic, which is kind of why we wanted to – Uh, not give the full, I mean, people can listen to other episodes um, on some of this, but specifically to think about um, what happened to defeat the Russian Revolution and the aftermath and some of the debates around that. So I guess to want to think about that, we also need to understand why we think the Russian Revolution is so important, to understand why we care so much about getting the history right post 1917 and what happened. So do we want to start there, Sandra, with kind of why why bother learning about this period of history?
1: Well, last century, for 60 years, people were argued by both the left and the right and virtually everyone except tiny numbers of revolutionary Trotskyists that um, socialism or communism or some kind of worker state existed in all the monstrous stalinist states, like Russia, the USSR, all of Eastern Europe, a whole range of countries and um, and so, if they were communists, why would we want to fight for it? They were terrible places and um, if you also some people argue that it's inevitable you'll end up with something like that if workers dare to take power, and so you would have to try to think of some other way to get to socialism and No one's been able to come up with any other way. The working class has the social and economic power and it organises collectively when it's fighting and combative. And that lays the basis for socialism. And, you know, no one else has, we've never seen any other way that we could approach the idea of socialism. And it's worth saying that a statized economy identified as socialist is quite common, going right back to some of the people like Lasalle in Marx's day, And it's a very palatable idea for elitists, people who are liberals and reformists who can't stomach the idea of the working class taking over but think that capitalism does need radical change. And so, you know, all those kinds of people jumped on board and then the Western governments painted the monstrosities as communists because that discredited socialism and Marxism in most ordinary workers' minds. Um, And so as one historian commented, no other subject of historical research and debate has been more directly conditioned by conscious political manipulation. So if people find it hard to follow, they just need to persevere and keep finding the things to read. Um, Because Stalin justified everything he did um, using what seemed like Marxist terminology. So he says, um, we're gonna build socialism in one country. And just that one statement, debauches. The content, the spirit of Marxism, um, everything about Marxism, Trotsky called it a reactionary utopia and predicted that all the communist parties associated with it would be nationalist and reactionary and, you know, that was an element of all their politics. And so um, the idea that humanity can be free was completely undermined by these states. So understanding what happened is absolutely critical to even understanding how to get to socialism for people who are trying to work it out but um, also for those of us that are defending the idea that it's a worker state based on workers councils and soviets which i'll say something about um as the as the only way forward to socialism and you know there's it's not inevitable that they would end this way
0: and i think yeah you've hit the two major things really there that um, you know, people say you can't be a socialist, look at the Soviet Union, it was not a nice place to live. And there's millions of people who say that, actually. And the second thing is the inevitability of, you know, if you have a revolution and the working class try to take power, it will just end up corrupted and um, a dictatorship of another form uh, to capitalism. So we're very clear when we talk about the Russian revolution being defeated, which I think is an important framing for this, not just saying it sort of slowly merged from one thing to another, um, you know, because that plays into the idea that Lenin leads to Stalin, which is the classic formulation. When we say, in fact, the Russian revolution was defeated, um, which means that there's a clear break between one thing and the next. So if you want to, Begin with an explanation of the defeat of the revolution. Where is your starting point for that?
1: And some of what you said, I'll come back to um, through this as well. Mm. So the starting point is just to look at what Lenin and Trotsky, um, the main leaders of the revolution, actually argued would be the prospect for building socialism. And they said we'll be able to form a workers' state with the backing of the peasantry, but that will. Um, be very precarious because it's in a very backward economy, well, one that's dominated by peasants, and um, the workers are a tiny minority, and so they were perfectly open about what their prognosis was, that they would not be able to last for very long without a workers' revolution somewhere in Europe that could send them material, economic, and all kinds of aid. And so Trotsky said, just the night before the October insurrection in um, 1920, on the 26th of October, when the Soviets took power, he said to the Soviets, we rest all our hopes on the possibility that our revolution will unleash the European revolution. If the revolting peoples of Europe do not crush imperialism, then we will be crushed. And they expected that that could happen because, you know, that the revolutions could happen because A crisis big enough to create a revolutionary situation in Russia was bound to impact workers in the West, and they thought that the peasantry would be difficult to keep on side. But if, as they were determined to do, the workers' state um, supported them taking the land from the landowners through their own revolutionary uprisings, then all it would take would be that the workers would have to be able to raise the living standards of peasants who had lived in abject degradation for centuries and that would not be able to be done without material aid from workers in the west and apart from that you needed workers in the west to defend them against the ruling classes there which they did from time to time but um the tra- you know so they were going to need agricultural machinery to modernize um agriculture commodities to raise the living standards of the peasants and all the rest of it and and Lenin repeated the point again in January 1918, the absolute truth is that without a revolution in Germany, we shall perish. Now, there were revolutions, we haven't got time to go through them all, from Germany to Hungary, from, you know, to occupations of factories in Italy was an opportunity, all kinds of countries where there were opportunities, and one by one, they were all defeated, and so Everything we talk about has to be seen in this context, the backward economy isolated in a capitalist world and holding on, hoping they'll be rescued, and the chance of that disappeared by about 1923. Hmm. I'll fill some of that out later.
0: So, I guess, I mean, there's a period of time where there's possibilities for that isolation to be ended by what's happening in the rest of Europe. but. It's useful, I think, to go through some of what the consequences for that isolation were, because obviously, I mean, um, on the economic side, you talked about the backwardness of the Russian economy in nineteen seventeen and what that means, but also just for the politics of the situation. Um, can we talk through some of some of that kind of consequences of that international isolation?
1: Yeah. Well. When I try to think about this uh, period and these issues, I always think of what Marx said. He wrote that uh, humans make their own history, but they do not make it in circumstances of their own choosing. And that is so, like, this is such a typical example. Um, And so inside Russia, well, so theoretically, you sort of got to try to understand the relationship between the subjective, what you want to do, and the objective what is possible in any circumstance, and they have to be judged on that basis. So inside Russia, we had the worker state set up by the Soviets, so I mentioned the you know the most democratic institutions ever known to humanity since the rise of classes, um, where the delegates were elected, they could be recalled any time, they remained at work, living in the same conditions as those that elected them. But immediately the revolutionary state was besieged by a whole range of problems. The world war had devastated the economy. So even by late 1917, Lenin had described the situation as a catastrophe. All through 1917, the capitalists had been sabotaging the economy, trying to, you know, sacking workers wholesale where they could get away with it, um, because they knew that if workers were unemployed, you know, put a pressure, downward pressure on ability to fight for people's rights, Um, A lot of workers were driven out of the cities because they had to go back to the country where they came from to survive. Um, And so industry was operating at a level below what it had been before they went into the war. So, for instance, in 1920, the production of pig iron was only 3% of what it had been in 1914. Um, Cotton was 11%, a whole range of statistics. But overall, industrial output was only 18%. Of the pre-war level, so you don't have to have a lot of imagination to see the privation, the hardship, and the famine that all of this could hap- um, you know, um, bring about. And then the imperialist countries of the West instituted an imperialist blockade of the uh, areas of the Russian Empire that were controlled by the Bolsheviks, and that was that came in in June 1918. And at the same time. They're trying to negotiate a peace with Germany and to get that peace because the war had to be ended. The revolution, one of the main demands was to end the war, and the soldiers were exhausted and the population. And so they had to actually hand over heaps of their most productive land, like most of Ukraine and that. So, all of that. And then within months, they're forced to fight a civil war against the reactionary white armies, which had already been mobilized during 1917 to try and bring about. A military dictatorship in August Um, and some of the historians like Richard Pipes try to make out the imperialist invasion meant nothing, but actually the white armies would have collapsed without the backing from the West. Um, Their soldiers even, their crack troops wouldn't fight because they were exhausted and uh, but they were built up again to an army of a hundred thousand with funds and training from the West And Evan Maudsley, he's one of the main historians of the Civil War, argues that the military operations of the Central Powers from February to May 1918 were critical. Hundreds of thousands of German, Austrian and Turkish troops were involved. Seventeen Russian provinces as well as Poland were occupied. Britain played the main role with huge amounts of um, aid and um, with their naval contingents in the Baltic and the Gulf of Finland and then in July 1918, landing troops in Archangel and Megan Trudell, of British Marxist, she says, um, by the close of 1918, the interventionist forces in Russia had reached a total of nearly 300,000 and they were from French, British, American, Italian, Japanese, German, Poles, Greeks, Finns, Czechs, from everywhere basically, all around Estonia, Poland, Um, in the Black Sea, across the Trans-Siberian Railway, Um, and we should note that Australia, in a time-honoured fashion, sent troops. Um, And so I finished this question by just commenting that the Red Army had to be brought together with ex-soldiers, a rabble of workers who had no training, and they even used um, Tsarist officers, which, much to Lenin's alarm, but Trotsky disciplined them. And it's an amazing example of how politics and mass sentiment can override the most appalling circumstances. Like millions of people died through it, um, but they defeated these troops from the West in spite of all the poverty. And of course, it just, you know, it really distorted all the priorities that had to be um, considered inside the country. Um, but um, and you only have to think about the whites representing the so-called enlightened West. That they um, victimized workers, shooting people at random, they gave the land back to the landlords from the peasants. And they, one thing they were notorious for, instituting anti-Jewish pogroms. And so, by contrast, the Bolsheviks did the opposite of all that. And in fact, they instituted the death penalty for anyone known to be involved in um, fermenting anti-Semitic um, you know, beh- behavior or sentiment. And so you know, all of this added to the industrial stuff I talked about is just absolutely devastating, by like 1921 when it finishes and the economy is even worse.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing when you consider the state of the other powers that were fighting in the First World War at the end of the First World War, just how depleted they were. And then on top of that, you have the backwardness of Russia's economy before the First World War then on top of that, you have the invading imperial forces, like you said, from all of these different countries that were sent to contribute to defeating the revolution through the Civil War. It's just incredible, really. I, I mean, even when you think about the uh, question of just food supplies at, in this period of the Civil War, when you know all the transportation is affected by the impact of the war and then the revolution and so on, uh, the distribution of food um all of that kind of stuff meant that people were in conditions of you know the the stories of people eating rats and all you know just like this yeah. horrendous <laughs> I, I thought it was yeah, so yeah, but it just it just shows you that um that but those people still continued to fight with Trotsky in the red army mm. because they were committed to uh the victory of the revolution and you know so i mean i mean all of that kind of goes towards answering the question of whether there was a way of avoiding this civil war because if you think that the um the process of fighting that civil war was partly what led to what happened next then the logic is to say well could they have avoided it could they have sort of brought some of those white army people somehow into the Bolshevik camp through some other means that wasn't direct combat.
1: Well, and the other thing on what you just said, the peasantry were being forced to pay, you know, hand over so much grain, they were living still in the poverty that they hoped to get out of. <clears throat> so, you know, the whole situation was just terrible. But there are people who argued they didn't need to fight the civil war, that they only did that because they wanted a dictatorship. But really, like the Bolsheviks well, it wasn't just the Bolsheviks anyway. They formed a government with the left, left socialist revolutionaries, the party of the peasantry, which we'll come to. Um, they didn't start the civil war. They were confronted with the counter-revolution two days after the insurrection in Petrograd in Moscow. And Victor Serge writes about this, a libertarian that wrote a book. Well, people might know him for a range of novels and things he wrote, but he wasn't a Marxist, but he supported the Bolsheviks. He said they were the only answer to the depravity of the white armies in the West. But um, he gives an account of 28th of October in Moscow where workers are being um, killed already and um, uh, several dozen workers who didn't know what was happening were promised as you know, to just be allowed out if they surrendered and they gave up their guns and they herded into a courtyard and to their astonishment, the, um, some covers are pulled off and there's machine guns and they're just all mown down round after round. And try. Then one or two actually survived under the bodies and Serge spoke to them and the person told Serge, the walls of the surrounding buildings are spattered with blood and bits of flesh after, at the end of it. And Serge says, this massacre is not an isolated act. Let us remember these facts. They show the firm intention of the defenders of the provisional government to drown the workers' revolution in blood. The white terror had begun. This is two days after the insurrection. An English journalist, Morgan Phillips Price, uh, writing for the Manchester Guardian, who wasn't particularly sympathetic to the Bolsheviks at first, he described the situation, even before the Soviets took power, The democracy has the vast majority on its side, but the small body of industrialists and bankers is, with foreign assistance, fighting a stubborn battle for its existence as a class, and he describes the Civil War as a class war, Uh, both sides fighting for their survival. And this is something that vast numbers of millions of workers and peasants understood at the time, fighting for their class survival and not... A version of fascism, as Trotsky said, you know, predicted they could have ended up with. Um, and yet historians and enemies of Bolshevism constantly just refuse to face these facts. Our the, world.
0: the question then is, if we look to where the Bolsheviks had their most um, strength, and potential power to transform Russia you know, into a genuinely socialist country was the cities and the Soviets that had been established through the process of the revolution. So what's happening there at this point? I mean, if if there was a chance to save the revolution, it was surely in the cities and, and in the Soviets. So how, how was that affected in this period?
1: Yeah, well... You Know the economic disaster that I talked about, collapse of the economy, that means basically the collapse of the working class, a whole dislocation of workers. So by 1920, there's only um, 43% of the number of workers that had been employed in 1917. Um, the people who'd become unemployed in that, mo- a lot of them returned to the villages, but of course. And, and including the most class-conscious and dedicated revolutionaries were dead on the battlefield. Um, and so, the class that led the revolution and gave its its spirit, its you know dedication, had some class consciousness of what to do, um, and made the democratic process possible. They were you know basically halved in importance, and politically, it's really worse than just those numbers imply because. Even the workers working, they were being paid so little, they're under threat of unemployment all the time scrounging to stay alive because there's shortages of everything um, Because you know by June 1918, they've got the economic blockade um, And so they're not really organizing collectively anymore. So the Soviets um, Start to not operate and people put that down like especially anarchists say that they didn't operate because the Bolsheviks didn't want them to Like it's just ridiculous. The Bolsheviks based everything, Lenin had spent so much time studying the role of the Soviets as the basis for a democratic society that they weren't going to just dismantle them. Um, and uh, and then, you know, workers are resorting to uh, bartering the products they produce at times with peasants, even selling off some of the machinery <laughs> in the factories to try and get enough money, or, you know, just giving them to the peasantry and bartering to get some food. Um, And so, you know, it's not just that the numbers disintegrate, it's just that the ties linking the members of the working class into a a collective and powerful force in society have just fallen apart and are being destroyed. Um, And increasingly, those still left working are not from the most advanced workers. There's a whole influx of people raw from the countryside, peasantry with no traditions of all that. Um, As I said, the most militant are dead on the front. And then, tragically, some of the most class conscious when they come back to the cities have to be um, employed as people to oversee the administrators of the state machine because they're using czarist officials and they can't be trusted. So they're trying to, you know, keep control while having to use people who aren't that sympathetic or they're hostile half the time. And so the basis for workers' democracy being a conscious proletariat, organized, combative, and conscious of their class power is just eaten away. And um, by the end, at the end of the Civil War, they introduced what they call the new economic program, which we haven't got time to go into, where it's absolutely terrible. They reintroduced the market to try to hold the economy together. And um, if you read about it, it's just like all the horrors of capitalism are immediately brought back in that they're combating. You know, some of the worst of the entrepreneurs of competition and greed and, you know, doing people over, the net men they were called and, you know, the older Bolsheviks despised them but they had to deal with them because they got the market economy going again. And then in 1921 there's a drought which is added to by the um, bloody blockade which just leads to absolute catastrophe with 33 million people dying in the famine just appalling. So So it's a clear example of why workers, you know, workers in the West had to rescue them because they're blockaded. The West are not going to help them out. They won't give them grain even though they know millions are dying. And so the only way that would have been turned around, you know, and to um, not be forcing the peasantry to send more grain than they can afford to the cities all the time, Um, then, you know, I think those circumstances make it so clear why, spreading the revolution was the critical question. Mm. And talk
0: I mean all of that I think throws up the thing of marxism being such a useful way of helping us understand history is that you know this this is a set of material circumstances like you said that are not chosen by the bolshevik party and you could write a massive list of these material conditions that have been created um that you then can't put in one column up against how what was their political willpower in another column and just think that they could have somehow through their through a better set of ideas kind of ended up in a different situation it just it doesn't fit with that um, way of interpreting history but it does fit if you have a more idealist interpretation and do just say well they had the wrong ideas and they should have had better ones, but it just is like, that seems like a crazy way of thinking about when you go through all of this detail. And in the same way, when we get to Stalin now, and thinking about um, how these factors added up to a figure like Stalin, and the kind of bureaucratic um, layer of control and dictatorship that was um, brought about under his leadership. Let's talk a bit about how one, you know, how that set of material circumstances leads to this particular form of
1: um, totalitarianism in the end? Mm. Well, I've sort of half hinted at some of it that the the class conscious workers that do get back to the cities, a lot of them can't even go back in the workforce because they have to be used to help with the apparatus that they need and, you know, they're trying to hold on and the argument the whole time is that, you know, we're holding on um, trying to help the revolutionaries in the West make a revolution. Um, and so they're forced to use hundreds of thousands of um, Czarist bureaucrats and stuff. And since people say that Lenin wanted this dictatorship, but like you only have to read what Lenin wrote and the speeches he was giving at the Congress of the Soviets. In March 1922, he, um, addressing them, and he says about Moscow, Let us look at Moscow, this mass of bureaucrats. Who is leading whom? The 4,700 responsible communists, the mass of bureaucrats or the other way round? I do not believe you can honestly say the communists are leading this mass. To put it honestly, they are not the leaders but the led. And at the end of 1922 he described the state apparatus as borrowed from czarism and hardly touched by the Soviet world a bourgeois and czarist mechanism. Ours is actually a worker's state, but a worker's and peasant's state. But that is not all. Our party program shows that ours is a worker's state with bureaucratic distortions. So you can't argue that, like, Lenin would have been celebrating the um, setting up of all the dictatorship and the undemocratic things that were happening in the bureaucracy. Um, And he just, it's it's absolutely... um, Uh, agonising to read the way he is, you know, he just, he knows there's no way out. Um, They have to try to get the revolutionists in the West to make a um, revolution. And the trouble is when Lenin died in 1924, Stalin's faction um, in the bureaucracy, which had already begun to build up, gives him a power against Trotsky and other people who resist him. He's already built a base in the bureaucracy. And it sort of has the power because they're organising the economy and um, it's um, <clears throat> pretty difficult for <clears throat> anyone to stop it because the working class can't have just now have lost the ability to resist. They've demoralised, they're fragmented. And so to understand what they did, like the socialism in one country, um, it's like going back to the English revolution, uh, Industrial Revolution where Marx called it primitive accumulation. And the only way that you could build up the industrial um, economy again was by absolutely vicious super exploitation of the workers that couldn't be done on a, well, we're all going to be in this together basis. Um, and a lot of the labor to do the mining and stuff in the Arctic Circle was done by the free labor provided in the gulags, where people were, all the political prisoners were um, incarcerated. Um, and in the process to try to undermine any idea that people had rights that might cut against all this, um, you know, they just, it, Stalin's bureaucracy just overturns everything. The women's rights they would won, sexual freedom, the right of the nationally oppressed. Um, and so, that, and then by like the end of the 1920s, 1928, Stalin announces a five-year plan, which encapsulates all this. Um, and, uh. They take away the last vestiges of workers control in the factories there's no longer any pretence that that's going to continue and um, and the Bolshevik support for the peasants taking the land is overturned by what they called collectivization, which sounds all very Marxist and socialist, but it just meant similar to what they did in the industrial Revolution driving small peasants off the land, forming bigger farmers farms and all the rest of it, and driving those um, peasants, dispossessed peasants into the cities to be a cheap labour force for the, um, you know, forced industrialization. At the same time, they're hounding, exiling, murdering, sending people to the gulags, all the people who supported Trotsky, um, because Stalin is trying to claim the mantle of Lenin. So all these people have to be silenced because there's a lot of them are saying, this is not what we fought for, um, which it wasn't. So, the counter-revolution, like, people assume that a counter-revolution just means some act where there's a military dictatorship set up or something, but this actually makes it so clear that it's a whole process, and the process went on into the mid-30s, really. Um, and uh, the only thing, again, which could have reversed the process was if workers had been able to come in from um, other countries as a worker state, giving them what they needed, So, the other, the last point I would make about this is that if the Bolsheviks just did nothing about the revolutionary movements in Europe and had said, who do you? We've got too much to do here building up our dictatorship. We're industrializing, you know, we're getting on with things. Well, okay, you could say that they did that. What they said about needing to spread the revolution was a load of rubbish, but they put enormous political and leadership resources into trying to, you know, help through the workers, uh, the um, Communist International, which they um, they tried to convince, you know, the revolutionaries in Europe what was needed to make a revolution and it was just, they, they hadn't built revolutionary organisations and it was just too late. Um, and all the opportunities, one after another, are just um, squandered really and they're left and the bureaucracy just takes off, you know, and Trotsky's, Isolated, expelled from the party in twenty eight, in um, exile in twenty nine, and his supporters just totally uh, vilified and victimized.
0: So, I mean, there's a parallel process there between um, what's happening in Russia and then what's happening internationally with the defeats of the revolutions in Europe as Stalin kind of consolidates power in Russia and the Bolsheviks kind of lose power, basically. So, I mean, I think it's useful to think about it in that way as well, that those two things were absolutely connected and and that the work of the international to try to, you know, encourage and support and um, make those revolutions successful was defeated at the same time as things were being defeated in Russia. Of the so, but right before we finish, let's cover a couple of the um, things that come up about alternatives, I guess, to this whole civil war and and Stalinism and Stalin coming to power, and, and that begins in 1917 with the issue of the Constituent Assembly. So this is one of those big questions that you're supposed to debate when you do revolutions, I think, in year 12 or whatever it is in Victoria, should you have supported the Constituent Assembly? And it's sort of presented in this way that that is the equivalent to a kind of Western liberal parliamentary democracy. And if they'd continued with that, you wouldn't have had any of these problems. What do you think about that argument?
1: Well, I'm going to skip over the Constituent Assembly pretty quickly because it's it's yeah. a you know it's, it's actually a really minor question at the time. The Constituent Assembly was rubbish. Virtually no one supported except the people who were becoming the counter-revolution. And, um, you know, eventually the soldiers guarding the thing go up to the chairperson and say, um, can, can, we, can we just finish because the soldiers want to go home? And everyone just goes. like, And no one at the time, like, it's absolutely mad that even anarchists today make a fuss about you didn't support the Constituent Assembly. They don't even support... Power, they say they don't support parliaments and yet they think that that's a blow against the Bolsheviks So I think I'll just go on to talk to the, the idea that Like the idea that the people say they should have formed a coalition government like honestly if the who says in the liberal democracies that if you win a, an election even if you win with 50.2% you should make a coalition with someone else And the Bolsheviks had overwhelming support. They had said openly they were for the Soviets taking power. It's on that basis that they have overwhelming majority in the Soviet Congress that declared they were taking power and organised the insurrection. So like of 650 delegates, 390 of them were Bolsheviks, even though some of them were not members of theirs, they supported them, 670 delegates were asked their view on p- taking power. 505 responded that they were for the pa- Soviets taking power. The Mensheviks and the S.R.s, the moderate socialists who were rapidly joining the counter-revolution, uh, they had 600 of 882 delegates at the beginning of 1917 and they've been so disgraceful, so counter-revolutionary that they've lost all their support. And so by... Um, By now they have barely a quarter of the delegates and an overwhelming majority of them are lefts, you know, on their left who orient towards the Bolsheviks anyway. Um, And so Morgan Phillips Price, um, he um, says, the provisional government of Kerensky fell before the Bolshevik insurgents because it had no supporters in the country. And then this truth was summed up by Marta, one of the leading Mensheviks who had been, originally an ally of Lenin's and then a long-term political opponent, he writes this in a private communication, so he had no reason to be polite or to make it up. He said, understand, please, that before us, after all, is a victorious uprising of the proletariat. Almost the entire proletariat supports Lenin and expects its social liberation from the uprising. So these people who are like a tiny minority, they've got no support in the country, you're expected to make a coalition with them in government. Like, it's just ridiculous. Um, who were they going to form it with? The moderate socialists all walked out of the Soviet, and uh, but the railway union, a right-wing union, tries to cobble together a coalition and has all the Mensheviks and everyone trying to negotiate it. In the end, they just condemned the moderates and the right-wing and they said, the madmen who at this moment do not want compromise Instead of striving for a compromise, the right part of the democracy put to the Bolsheviks the impossible demand of total capitulation. What they're talking about—they're all demanding our government be set up with no Bolsheviks in it. Like honestly, the whole—the whole argument is just uh, fanciful. No one would argue this today about a—you uh, know—any kind of election. Um, and so in the end, the left socialist revolutionists, the sorry, the socialist revolutionists, the party of the peasantry, split. And the left of it actually did support the Bolsheviks and they joined the government. And they only left the government in June 1918 because they didn't agree with um, the peace treaty with Germany. They wanted to fight on, which was basically impossible. Um, and then, you know, unhappily they actually resorted to acts of terror once they left the government and it was them that attempted to um, assassinate Lenin, which precipitated his ill health and premature death. But they did try to have a coalition and they were the only ones you could have one with, which, you know, lasted until June. That does lead in a bit
0: to the idea that, you know, the circumstances were not really ready for socialism and therefore parliamentary democracy, even if it was, you know, Having to deal with all of these right wingers and people who were against the Bolsheviks, like that would have been a better outcome than Stalinism.
1: Yeah, well, like people who Mike Haynes, who's a British Marxist, did a really detailed study of um, um, the elections, um, you know, and the, you know who supported who and all the rest of it. And building on what I just said about the little bit of support for anyone else. Um, he quotes the most serious historian of the cadets, which was the right-wing party of the, well, sorry, the small liberal party of the capitalist class. And he says, with their own limited national constituency, the cadets, who some people say should have been in the government, could never claim to rule on the basis of representative principles, because they have no support by now. And, um, you know, and we only have to look back things I've alluded to somewhat, During 1917, these people are already supporting moves for a military dictatorship. So the alternative wasn't a nice, settled bourgeois democracy. They were determined, the capitalists and the socialists had refused, you know, the moderates, the Mensheviks and SRs had refused to differentiate themselves from the people who were the counter revolutionaries from the beginning. They're becoming counter revolutionary themselves. And so um, there was, there was no way that they were going to settle just for a parliament because they wanted to be able to crush the revolution as a signal to the workers of Europe and the workers and peasants and the soldiers who had supported this process that you raise your head and, you you know, we can walk all over you. And so that was why it was so important that they did try to fight for, you know, win the civil war. Um, and to hold on and to keep on trying to get the revolutions in the West to, um, and the tragedy was, you know, inside Russia there's so little options and they fail in the West. So I don't know. I had was going to talk about when Stalin gets elected, it, when Stalin gets control, more and more the Communist parties outside are given directions for all kinds of counter-revolutionary things that make, you know, there's a cycle set in train, but we could jump over that. And perhaps yeah,
0: I, that's also an interesting, I guess, a kind of dialectical process that happens internationally through uh, between what's happening in Russia and and what's happening in with other revolutions, and then I guess you end up with all of the bizarre Stalinist policies that come to infect and influence every communist party around the world, including in Australia. You know, and um, the sort of it, uh, directly contradictory policies that come out, and so on. But that's a whole nother discussion, I reckon. We can that would be an interesting thing to talk about. Um, so, if we had to sum up, then uh, kind of the most important lessons from this period, or arguments, or distortions that we think need correcting the most <laughs> um, from the defeat of the Russian Revolution, where would you begin and end?
1: I think. We have to say, if they wanted a dictatorial regime that Stalin built, there would never have been a debate or a struggle against Stalin. They would have been part of it and glorying in it. Um, and the and you know, we only have to look at Lenin railing against the growing bureaucracy before he died. He objected to the comrades just refer- referring to the state as a worker state, saying that it was no longer, you know, it was so degenerating. Um, And the only reason to keep on fighting was to defend the gains of the revolution to try to, until, you know, there was a revolution in the West. Um, And as I said, they put enormous resources into that. And as he lay dying, Lenin disowned Stalin and I really don't think if he had lived he would have done a lot, sorry, he would have done, you know, a lot of what Trotsky did, opposing Stalin. But I think unlike Trotsky, because Lenin had been associated with the Bolsheviks for longer. He would have had more authority to denounce Stalin, but he still would not have been able to solve the problem inside Russia. He would have had to have decided what to do to get out and, you know, regroup in Europe or something, which Trotsky eventually had to do, but probably too late. Um, And so because the workers' democracy just couldn't survive with the economy the way it was, and um, the famine, the disease, all the things I've been through, and so to those who say that they always intended a bureaucratic dictatorship. My repost is well, why did they use up so much precious political resources organising the Communist International, putting a lot of effort into trying to educate the socialists? If they were solely focused on running their state, that accusation might well hold some weight, but it's not true. They put enormous leadership resources into it. They said they would need help from a worker state right from the start. I tried to make that a reality while managing all the horrors that I've been through. And the tragedy was that it wasn't in the end up to the Bolsheviks. It was the revolutionaries in the West and those parties who some people still support who have to take, you know, the blame for what happened. And Rosa Luxemburg, who people like to hold up as an alternative to the Bolsheviks, she supported the Bolsheviks and she wrote to Louise Kautsky the wife of the Kautsky who led the German revolution into disaster, she wrote to her in 1917 from prison, are you happy about the Russians? Of course, they will not be able to maintain themselves in this witch's Sabbath, not because some statistics show economic development in Russia to be too backward, but because social democracy in the highly developed West consists of miserable and wretched cowards who will look quietly on and let the Russians bleed to death. And to be honest, I think people who support the arguments against the Bolsheviks that we've been through basically are supporting Stalin as he hounded, exiled, murdered, sent to the gulags, tens of thousands of genuine revolutionaries who had fought all their lives for a decent life, uh, persecuted Trotsky and his family um, to silence their voices. So even airbrushed Trotsky out of photos of the revolution. I met people from Russia after the wall came down in 1989 who'd been in the archives and they'd bring you photos and say, who's this? We've never heard of this man. That's Trotsky. He's been written out of your history. And they had to try to understand what Trotsky's arguments were. So it was not Stalin that kept alive the idea of the self-emancipation of the working class, of internationalism and all the other principles of Marxism. It was Trotsky And he, I'll finish with how he summed up what Stalin's monstrosity represented uh, um, in 1940, just a few months before a Stalinist assassin landed an ice stick in his skull. He said, Stalinism had first to exterminate politically and then physically the leading caterer of in order to become that which it is now. And he summed up what that was an apparatus of the privileged, a break upon historical progress, an agency of world imperialism. Trotsky was one of the key leaders beside Lenin, fighting for what they stood for. He would not have written that if he and Lenin had intended to end up where they got to in the first place. Um, and I think that's, you know, basically that statement clinches the arguments as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah.
0: Sure does. Um, well, I hope this has inspired people to um, learn more about this period of history and read more, and there's plenty, certainly plenty to read. If you go through red flag books, you'll be sure to find histories of the Russian Revolution that are not the kind of distorted liberal versions of history that are uh, written by socialists who are determined to, you know, look at all of the sources that are increasingly available, actually, Um of the reality of the situation in Russia and interpret them as wonderfully as Sandra has done for us on this episode of um, Red Flag Radio. So thank you very much for doing that. And thank you for listening, everyone. Um, This is Red Flag Radio. We have a world
1: to win.